Please, brothers and sisters, then turn with me this morning to our text that we will be looking at, which comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and verses 9 through 13. Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Thus far as the reading of of God's Word. Now the richness and the, the depth of these first 13 verses is really incredible. Mark packs so much in here. As we've seen last week, it's, re- it's replete with Old Testament quotations and echoes of Old Testament text. So much so that we could spend weeks just going over those. Right? Last week we've seen the implications of Mark's quotations from the prophets Malachi and Isaiah from, chapter, from verses 2 and 3. Declaring to those who would have been sitting around hearing the Gospel being read before them, that John was the messenger of the Lord who came to prepare His way. He was the one whom the prophets foretold. He was Elijah who was to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And we've seen that John did everything that he was commissioned to do as a good messenger. He was a herald. He went before the king declaring the message that the King was soon to arrive. He came to prepare the hearts of the people, softening their hearts to receive that One who was to come. He called them to repentance, giving them another opportunity to turn away from their sin and to be washed in the waters of baptism, looking forward to the One who was to come by faith. And it is this One who was to come that John declared to us. And it is this One who was to come that Mark tells us in verse 1 is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so now you can only imagine what, it, what John is feeling. We can, we can picture John in the Jordan River baptizing all those who were coming, repenting of their sin and placing faith in the One who was to come. And all the while as he's baptizing, He knows that at some point, the Messiah could be coming. He's expecting at some point, the Messiah might be coming into the wilderness as He's he's baptizing. And all of a sudden, as He's baptizing, He sees in the distance, coming through the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure we all, in some small sense, can kind of understand what He was feeling. If you've ever taken your, your child 
to, to school on their first day of school and you go to pick them up. Or perhaps you've gone to the airport to pick a loved one up that you haven't seen in a while, right? And you're standing there and you're waiting. And perhaps you're, you're engaging with someone else who's there. And all of a sudden, you see these droves of people coming out of the doors. And you're looking and you're looking and you may be talking with someone. But as soon as you spot your child or that person that you're waiting for at the airport, what do you do? You stop and you say, oh, there they are. I see them. There they are. This is exactly what John did upon seeing Jesus walking towards him. We are told this in John's Gospel in chapter 1 and verse 29. That John sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And immediately, as these words proceed forth, out of John's mouth, we understand at that moment that John understands and he knows who Christ is and what His purpose for was in coming. He says He is the Lamb of God. Now this could be an allusion to a few different things. Right? This Lamb figure could point us back to Genesis 22. If you recall, when the, when the Lord tells Abraham to take His Son out into the land of Moriah to offer Him as a sacrifice. What happens is they're out there collecting wood. What does Isaac say to his father? He says, Father, where's the lamb? And what's Abraham's response to him? The Lord will provide for us a lamb. And so perhaps right now is the fulfillment of that. The Lord has provided for His people the lamb. Perhaps it could be pointing to the the Passover lamb or the lamb that was sacrificed daily in the temple for the sins of the people. But regardless, John's declaration is clear. Jesus is the one who has come to save His people from their sins. And now that John has come and done all that he has been commissioned to do, it is Jesus' turn. His mission is ready to begin and a new era of redemptive history is now underway. And it is this ministry of Christ which is inaugurated with His baptism and His temptation that we want to consider together this morning. And we're going to do so under three points. The first is the significance of Jesus' baptism. The significance of Jesus' baptism. The second is the significance of His temptation. And then the third is, what does that result for in for God's people? So to begin then looking at point one, look with me once more at verses 9-11. through 11. In those days, we are told, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now we have to remember, brothers and sisters, as we said in our introduction last week, Mark is brief. Right? And he jumps quickly from point to point. And we see that here. We see Mark's brevity here. As soon as Jesus comes, what happens? He's baptized and he comes up out of the water. There is no discourse. There's no dialogue between those two actions. Right? As Mark gives us, there was discourse. Mark fills that in. I mean, excuse me, Matthew fills that in. But we see that Mark is getting to the point. 
Remember what we said Mark's purpose is. It is to show us who Christ is. And so Mark's getting quickly to the point in saying that Jesus is divine. Because he says as soon as he's baptized, the heavens are torn, the Spirit comes down, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Matthew's account fills us in in greater detail for us in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where we read this. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now this buffers the point earlier that John understands who Jesus is. And he understands what he means when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Because John is practicing a baptism of repentance. And so he says, You're without sin. There is no need for me to baptize you. I'm the sinner. You must baptize me. And yet, at the outset, what we see Jesus doing and what we see Jesus saying demonstrates to us that the work of Jesus is substitutionary. It's substitutionary. You'll see, all these people have come from Jerusalem and from Judea, we're told. Sinners who have come out into the wilderness to hear what John is saying. They hear, they're curious. What, there's, there's a prophet? We haven't heard a prophet for hundreds of years. And they go out in the wilderness to see what he is, what he is saying. And he's declaring this repentance of sin for the Messiah soon to come. And so they, they want to go out and hear this and see this. But then we're told that there's this one who comes from Nazareth. And that one is Jesus. And that one comes alone. In opposition to the the groups of people who came from Judea and Jerusalem. The sinners who came. Jesus came all alone. But He has come now where the sinners are in order that He might identify Himself with us. And how is Jesus identifying Himself with us? It is through baptism. Now, Jesus had no sin. No need to confess sin. Nothing to repent for. But He must go through baptism, not for Himself, but for our sake. He does it to identify Himself with those whom He has come to seek and to save. He has come and done it to identify with those whom He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He comes to identify with sinners as the second Adam and our representative. If you remember, the first Adam was our representative. And he, he failed by transgressing the law of God. And now Jesus has come as the second Adam for all those who believe and has come to do what the first Adam has failed. And what was that? To obey the law perfectly, to fulfill the covenant of works and to redeem a people of His own. But you see, Jesus understood that in identifying Himself with us, what that truly meant. Jesus understood when He identified with us, what that meant for Him. And what that meant for Jesus was that Jesus was to become a curse. And Jesus was to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf. And so in taking upon Himself this sign of repentance, He likewise demonstrates that He understands that judgment is upon all of us. 
And so in taking upon Himself this sign, and in identifying Himself with us, what Jesus is saying is, I have come to endure what is due to you unto Me. That is what Jesus' baptism means. He is identifying Himself with us, saying, I have come to endure the wrath that was to come for you. That is why I am being baptized. And yet, what a sacrifice, brothers and sisters. What a sacrifice. No greater sacrifice. I mean, think about it. We are unwilling to depart with a lot of things. Our children, when they are young, unwilling to depart with a a toy to share. We as adults, unwilling to depart with time to give a a helping hand to someone else. Unwilling to, to depart with a couple bucks to help someone in need. And yet Jesus was willing to depart with His own life for ours. But also, Jesus' baptism tells us a couple important things about baptism itself. But yet, before we get to those, there is one prior point we must first establish. And that is this, that John's baptism is essentially the same baptism as the disciples. John's baptism is essentially the same as the baptism of the disciples. Now, this was the orthodox view of the Reformers. You can look at uh, the Italian Reformers Institutes, Francis Turretin, where he poses the question, is Jesus' baptism the same as is the baptism of others after Christ? And he says, the Orthodox, we affirm. And, he's, and then he points out who denies. And who do you think denied it? Rome. Rome denied it. Rome denied that they were essentially the same. And he points out for us in the Council of Trent between the years of 1545 and 1563 that they concluded this, if anyone should say the baptism of John had the same virtue as the baptism of that of Christ, let him be accursed. Now I bring this up because as I'm studying and as I'm preparing for today and I'm looking at this and I'm, and I'm looking at what contemporary Reformed authors have to say about this, it was surprising to me. But they no longer stand with the Orthodox. They actually now stand with the side of Rome. And so I was a little confused. I, I called up some brothers. We talked about it a little bit. You know, why is this? What, what's been happening? And, of course, we can't read anyone's heart, but I have a hunch. I have a hunch. And I believe the reason why they have departed with identifying these two baptisms as being essentially the same is because they see the weight of the Baptist argument if they don't deny it. Okay? Now, it's obvious that not at every point are these two baptisms identical. We're not saying that. No one has ever said that. But what we're saying is that it does not vary in substance, but rather only in circumstance or in accidents or to degree. Right? Which is to say that perhaps the, the measure of gifts were slightly different in John's baptism because they weren't administered in the fullness and light of Christ. Right? Christ has not yet come. 
And so perhaps Turretin says the gifts were more sparingly communicated, being richer in the baptism that the apostles administered, where there was a greater abundance of these gifts. But he says this, that in both, in both, they promised the grace of remission of sins and of regeneration for which water was the sign in the seal. You see, like we said last week, we pointed out to you in Luke 24 and in Acts 2, as well as John's baptism, that they were all calling for a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins by faith in Christ. Yet John's baptism was pointing forward. After Christ came, the apostles' baptism was pointing back towards Him. And so now, because Jesus was baptized, identifying Himself with us, we likewise are baptized as a symbol of our unity with Him. In addition, another key element is that both baptisms are ordained by God and both are accompanied with the Word of God. You see, baptism means nothing if it has not the Word. And yet we see John's baptism is a baptism of the Gospel as the beginning of the Gospel is given to us in verse 1 of Mark. In John's, in John's baptism, then is subsequent to that. Right? It follows Mark's introduction. And so for these reasons, the Reformed held that these two baptisms are essentially the same. And so now, for the, I want to draw out then how significant this point is because if John's baptism is the same as the baptism of the disciples, then we learn two vital truths this morning. And that is this. The first is that baptism is a baptism of repentance. Baptism is a baptism of repentance. This is the message that John proclaimed, that Jesus proclaimed, and the disciples proclaimed. And if it's a baptism of repentance, both John's and the apostles, then only those who are able to identify their sin and their need for a Savior and repent of their sin can be the rightful recipients of baptism. If both baptisms are a baptism of repentance, then guess what? Infants are excluded. Secondly, if John's baptism is the same as the disciples, and Jesus was baptized by John and did so to identify with us, then we ought to be able to look to the baptism of Jesus to see how we are to identify with Him. We are to look to Jesus and see what is the mode of baptism that Jesus endured. And that mode of baptism that Jesus submitted to, we are told, is immersion. This is what the Greek term baptizo means here in verse 9. Immersion. And this understanding is buffeted and it's strengthened by verse 10 when we read that Jesus came out from under the water of the Jordan. There's no need to go out to the Jordan River and to come up out of or ascend from being up under water if you are just sprinkled with it. It's only true of immersion. And so Jesus' example along with every other example that we are given in the Bible, is the reason why we use this mode of baptism and why we are Baptists. Because it is the ancient 
Christian practice of the church, of John, of Jesus, and of His disciples. And so immersion is the only proper mode of baptism. But now what we're told occurred when Jesus arose out of the water. What has occurred now that Jesus arose? We read immediately that the heavens are torn open and the Spirit was descending on Him like a dove. This is what we're told Jesus saw. Well, what was it that Jesus heard? He heard the voice of the Father saying, You are My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It is here, brothers and sisters, we see the triune God of Scripture revealed to us as the obedient Son comes and submits to the baptism that He has been called to in the waters of the Jordan. The Spirit comes and descends upon Him and the Father declares that Jesus is His beloved Son. This One that He has loved with a wondrous love from all of eternity. And yet, I want you to see that here, Jesus does not become Son, but the Father is declaring what Jesus has always been. And that is the unique Son of God. We likewise read that the Holy Spirit is said to be like a dove. A dove. Now that could be pertaining to the, the Spirit's purity or it could be pertaining to uh, the gentleness of a dove which upon descending upon Jesus uh, was a key factor in the ministry of Jesus. The gentleness of a dove was symbolized in the gentleness of Jesus' ministry. But regardless, this illusion comes from Isaiah 42, verse 1, where we read of the Father's servant. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Right? He puts his spirit upon him to strengthen him for his mission. And Jesus' response is to voluntarily take up that mission. But what we see here is the Godhead all present here. A part of our salvation in the initiation also of the ministry of Jesus. And unlike Israel, who turned away from God and who served foreign deities in the wilderness, even though they were called sons of God, Jesus, now the unique Son of God, has come in commission to do what Israel was failed to do. And He has been given the Spirit to support Him at every turn. And Jesus is fully aware of this. This is why He applies the servant songs of Isaiah to Himself. If you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 21. And this is what we read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. This is Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus knows that He must fulfill the mission of God's suffering servant. And so immediately, upon the Spirit descending upon Him and the Father declaring Him to be the Son of God, what is the first thing that happens to Jesus? He is driven deeper into the wilderness. And this brings us to point two. The significance of Jesus' temptation. Look with me at verses 12 and 13 of our text. We read this. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to Him. You see, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. And I ask, what does this remind you of? Because this certainly doesn't happen by chance. right? This all transpires due to the purpose and will of our Lord. And so what is Mark trying to teach us here by telling us that Jesus was driven out into the wilderness? Well, just as Israel in the Old Testament was brought out to the wilderness by the Lord to be tested, and through obedience they were to be brought to the promised land of Canaan, Jesus, now the true Israel, has been driven out into the wilderness to fulfill what they could not and bring us through obedience unto the greater promised land. I know that talking about Israel sometimes in certain circles can be a touchy subject for some, but we we must use our New Testament interpretive glasses when we read these texts. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, we read this, When Israel was my child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. Obviously, the prophet is talking about Israel being brought out of slavery from the Egyptians. But I ask, how do the New Testament writers interpret this text? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, he recounts how Herod sent out the wise men in order that they might find Jesus and come back and tell Him so that He could destroy and kill Jesus. And so the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and tells him, go to Egypt and don't do anything else until you hear something else. And we're told that they remain there until Herod's death. And then in chapter 2 of Matthew, In verse 15, we're told this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You see, Matthew says through the inspiration of the Spirit that Jesus is the fulfillment of this text. He is the fulfillment of what the prophet spoke about. It is He who has come as the true Israel and the true Son. And He will now bring about a new exodus for the people of God. And through perfect obedience to the covenant's demands, He will bring us to the promised land. This is what the Gospel writers are trying to show to us time and time again. This is why He tells us that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. What does that symbolize? The 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. You see, what Jesus' arrival has done, I would liken to windshield wipers. Alright, that's how it helps us to see the Old Testament. Right? 
What do windshield wipers do? What happens when it starts to rain and you're driving? As those droplets land, you can't see. You start to squint. Perhaps you move your head forward. If you've ever driven and it rained and you didn't have windshield wipers and you had to roll the window down and stick your head out and you had to look so that you could see more clearly. Right? This is what I liken Jesus to as He comes and He arrives. He is like those windshield wipers that turn on and clear away the windshield so that we might see things more clearly. This is what He has done for us. As He has come, He has cleared away the fogginess of the Old Testament and revealed to us its fulfillment in Himself. And there remains only now our stubbornness and our sinfulness that hinders us from seeing the reality and the truthfulness Because Scripture explicitly tells us time and time again that Jesus is the fulfillment of these texts. But not only has Jesus come as true Israel, but as we said earlier, He has come as a second Adam. And this has become more and more evident. Because what is the first thing that happens that we see when Jesus is driven out into the wilderness? He is tempted by Satan. He is tempted by Satan. And what should this bring to our recollection? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What happened to them? They were tempted by Satan. And how did Satan do that? Through making suggestions. And how does the serpent now try to tempt Jesus? As he's driven out into the wilderness, he tries to tempt him by making suggestions. You see the parallel of these things. As we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 3, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But unlike Jesus, unlike Adam, Jesus doesn't take the bait. You see, he must come as the second Adam. He must come as the new Israel, who were types of the anti-type, so that he might rescue us from the clutches of death by destroying the works of the devil. Right? This was Jesus' mission. To come and to suffer and endure and to overcome what the first Adam could not. And yet all the while Jesus was being tempted, He was without sin. And yet we must understand, although Jesus is tempted, He is tempted according to His human nature and not His divine. For God cannot be tempted. And yet as men and women, we we know what it is to be tempted. We know what it feels like, right? Usually it comes in that outward suggestion. Maybe someone tells us something. And we so we have this outward temptation that comes externally from us. But what accompanies it for us? Oftentimes an inward desire. Right? That sin that's being dangled in front of us, we oftentimes give uh, at least a brief second to think about it and to consider. I mean, take for example, if someone's walking in front of you and there's nobody around and $100 slips out of their back pocket, even though you might pick that up and you might give it to that person, that, that second or two that you thought, well, no one's around, they'll never know, I'll take it and I'll just walk the other way. Jesus never had that moment. Although He suffered the outward temptation, never once, Did He have the evil inner desire to cooperate with it? But it is here in the wilderness with Satan's suggestions that set the stage for this 
for this battle. Here is the battle between foes. As even the name Satan demonstrates to us, as Satan means adversary here. And so Satan is that great adversary as he's trying to thwart the plans of God. He's trying to tempt the Son of God. And he's trying to destroy the sons and daughters of God. But God in the person of Christ will defeat His enemy as God proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 by triumphing over Him on Calvary's cross. And so then this leads us to our third and final point, which is what is the result for us of Jesus' baptism and temptation? Well, where to begin? So often, what gets the most, what gets most talked about is the death of Jesus. When we talk about why He had to come and take upon Himself human nature. right? He came to, to die in our place, we say. But what is oftentimes neglected is the fact that dying wasn't enough. Dying wasn't enough. Let me explain what I mean though. We get this from our text today. Jesus had to humbly submit and to perfectly obey, as in His own words, fulfilling all righteousness. Not only did Jesus have to die in our place, but He likewise had to live in our place. We needed both the passive obedience of Christ, His death on the cross, but we also needed the active obedience of Christ, which was Him obeying the law. We needed this by Him fulfilling the law, doing what we could not, so that His righteousness could be imputed to our account. And He only accomplished this through His perfect obedience, through being baptized, and through suffering temptation. Never committing sin, neither a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Never a sin in thought, in word, or in deed. And this is that righteousness that we needed credited to our account. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer here today, this is exactly what you have. The imputed righteousness of Christ. Yet in order for that to happen, Christ had to become a curse. And that curse was laid upon Him the whole course of His life, not just at the cross. He suffered this curse being humiliated as the eternal Son of God coming down, taking upon Himself the form of a lowly servant. And because of this sacrifice, as the Father beholds us now, even though we be sinners, He beholds us in Christ, draped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, if Christ would not have came and down and lived perfectly and died for us, we would still be in our sins and without hope in this world. And yet now the Father showers us grace upon grace upon us. And so if Christ died, so that we might experience glory with Him one day, let us now live for His glory. And one of the ways in which we do this is by following the example of Jesus in the wilderness. Right? By when temptation rears its ugly head towards us, what did Jesus do? He fled and He turned right to the Word of God. Let us do the same thing. When temptation rears its ugly head, let us flee and turn to the Word of God. And just as the Spirit of God strengthened the human nature of Christ, we too who are believers have the Spirit of God and are strengthened to be able to flee and resist temptation. 
So, brothers and sisters, don't give temptation a second thought. Don't give it time in your mind or in your hearts. For this is what James tells us in chapter 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Don't do it. Don't desire it. Flee from sin. See its ugliness and its destructive nature. As you have been brought through the waters of baptism, symbolizing your death with Christ and your resurrection with Him to newness of life. So walk in newness of life. You see, the world is in the predicament that it is in because of sin. Yet Christ came down and died for our sin. So now as those who have been redeemed by the Lord, let us out of deep love and affection serve Him in every area of our life. And yet it is the triune God of Scripture whom we must serve. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, one God, three persons. For as we have seen today, it is all three persons of the triune God who bring about our salvation and who continue to bring us through salvation this very day through the Father's electing love, through Christ showing to the Father each day His atoning work on our behalf. And each and every day, the Spirit applying redemption to us and to our hearts and to our souls. Brothers and sisters, please, if you will, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We are grateful, Lord, that You reveal to us the mysteries of Your Word now that Christ has come. We pray, Lord, that You would continue to grant to us greater understanding. That You would grant to us greater obedience upon learning what it is You have called us to in Your Word. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to have a a great desire to serve the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, all these things in Christ's name. Amen.